Attention. This podcast contains subject matter that may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From out of the darkness, you hear voices that send shivers down your spine. That feeling of dread is undeniable when you notice the monster under the bed is trembling. The aliens are scrambling to get back to the mothership, and the vampires are refusing to rise. Your reptilian overlords are pleased to force on you two humans they swear are not their captives. Your hosts, Michael and Wendy. This is Eerie and Absurd. Welcome back to Eerie and Absurd. I'm Mike. I'm Wendy. We got some good stories. Yeah. Well, I'm going to do my story first. I'm doing mine on the Georgia Guidestones. You heard about this? They're, they're giant tablets to restart humanity after we destroy ourselves. Really? That's the gist of it. So, who? The stones? The stones say it. Well, I guess I need some more information. And so, I'm going to be basically, I'm reading an article by Michael East from medium.com the truth about the georgia guidestones so you're just gonna read his article it's a really good article like he wraps it up really well it's real easy is it i'd say it's efficient i don't think so erected in 1980 in the u.s state of georgia the georgia guidestones stand 90 miles to the east of atlanta and are a modern mystery Made from granite, they stand 16 feet tall and consist of five stones arranged in an X shape, with four wings surrounding a central stone. The structure is topped by a 25,000-pound capstone. While who physically made the stones is public knowledge, there isn't much information on what their purpose is or who is truly behind the construction of what many believe might be a guide for surviving the apocalypse. It was in June of 1979 that the Elberton Granite Finishing Company was approached to create the monument by a small group of loyal Americans. The alleged spokesman of this group, Robert C. Christian, walked into the office on Tate Street in Elberton and made President Joe H. Finley a seemingly outrageous proposal. Christian stated that he wished for a megalithic structure comprising of 16-foot stones to function as a compass, clock, and calendar. He specified that the creation should be able to defy man-made and natural disaster. The man admitted his name was a pseudonym and that he had chosen it simply because he was a Christian. He added that he represented a party from outside the state who wished to remain anonymous. He had come to Elberton because the city's granite was the finest in the world. Believing the man to be crazy, the company attempted to run him off by giving him an astronomical quote. Many times the highest sale ever by the company. He accepted it. So asking if there was a local banker that he trusted, Finley passed R.C. Christian over to Wyatt C. Martin, president of the Granite City Bank. Meeting at the bank, Christian was again quite open about his name being a pseudonym and revealed that the planning of the Georgia Guidestones had been underway for 20 years. He stated that he hoped other conservation-minded groups would add to the stone in the future and that these communal stones would carry the message he intended to have carved on them in even more languages. 
Martin showed Christian the Bicentennial Memorial Fountain, its massive 13-stone frame being a tribute to the original American colony. Martin intended to prove to Christian that his plan was unfeasible, yet the mysterious customer promised to return after the weekend. He exited the city by charter plane and was seemingly scouting for locations. When he did return on Monday, Martin insisted on going by the book requiring a name and evidence that R.C. Christian had the financial means to pay for the proposed Georgia Guidestones. Christian agreed on conditions of lifelong non-disclosure on Martin's part and the destruction of all documentation after the project was concluded. He said he was going to send the money from different banks across the country because he wanted to make sure it couldn't be traced. He made it clear that he was very serious about secrecy, so he didn't want anybody to know who he was. Okay. Leaving the bank, Christian returned to the Elberton Granite Finishing Company and gave Finley a box containing a model of the Guidestones, as envisioned, along with a detailed 10-page document on requirements. The following Friday, Martin telephoned to say that a deposit of $10,000 had been paid and Finley got to work. The stones were quarried at the Pyramid Quarry and cleaned and sized in Elberton. Master stone cutters were utilized to smooth the finish and a location for the structure was found, with Finley and Martin assisting Christian in selecting the site. Then landowner Wayne Mullinix was paid $5,000 for the site and granted lifetime cattle rights on the land and the contract to lay the foundation. With the location set and work well underway, Robert Christensen would now exit the story, never being seen again in person. He would communicate with Martin by post. It was noted that he never mailed from the same location twice. Neither Martin nor Finley ever knew who he was. Like his real name. Like his real name. They just knew him as R.C. Christian. The instructions for the creation of the monument were complicated, and Finley was forced to employ an astronomer ensuring the correct construction. The center stone has an eye-level oblique hole drilled so that the North Star is always visible along a slot which is always aligned with the sun's solstice and equinoxes. Meanwhile, the four large upright wing slabs are oriented to the limits of moon migration during the year. The slabs were to be etched on both sides with a message, each side containing a different language. These carvings included dead languages that few could be expected to understand. The United Nations provided the translations for the stones. Starting due north and moving clockwise, the languages included on the rocks are English, Spanish, Swahili, Hindi, Hebrew, Arabic, Chinese, and Russian. A few feet to the west is another stone, a tablet explaining the monument's purpose. On this tablet, engraved with information on the construction, the phrase, let these be guidestones to an age of reason, is boxed and surrounded by translations in Babylonian cuneiform, classical Greek, Sanskrit, and ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. The primary inscription on the slabs seemed to be a modern Ten Commandments, a list of advice for humanity following a worldwide disaster. So I'm going to read off what these tablets say. They all say the same thing, just yeah, in different languages. in different languages. Maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. Guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Unite humanity with a living new language. Rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. Protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. Let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court. Avoid petty laws and useless officials. Balance personal rights with social duties. Prize truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite. Be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature. Leave room 
for nature. It says it twice. Hmm. The purpose of the Georgia Guidestones and who was behind them was already controversial before the structure had even been erected, with locals believing that Martin and Finley themselves were the masterminds and the work was against Christian scripture. Many thought the above tenets were objectionable for not placing faith as a primary objective. Both men decided to take a lie detector test at the Elberton Civic Center to publicly prove they were not involved, and they did not know who R.C. Christian was. The tests were witnessed by reporters from the Alberton store, and they passed convincingly. So they were telling the truth. A local firebrand minister, James Travenstead, raged that the stones were for sun worshippers, cult worship, and devil worship, adding that occult groups would flock to the city and someday a sacrifice will take place here. Whatever. The sensational claims were only heightened when one of the men working on the stones, Charlie Clamp, claimed to have heard strange music and disjointed voices while sandblasting the stone. So his ears were ringing? Yeah, maybe. Ringing with some music, some devil music. The Georgia Guide stones were eventually unveiled on March 22, 1980, with accounts differing as to the number of people in attendance. Some say it was as little as 100, others as many as 400. The news of the unveiling would soon broadcast across Atlanta and the local area, and curious tourists soon came flocking. So everybody wanted to see these stones. You know, I would expect all this ridiculousness from all these people... From the 1800s with all these, the rituals and the sacrifice. Yeah. I wonder but how we're many... coming up on satanic panic. So I guess that also makes sense. Yeah. As to why that's happening. That's a good point. I wonder how many people have never heard of these though. And they've been know. there since 1980. Uh, there were people coming from Japan, China, India, and just everywhere. All over the place to see these stones. Okay. And so to the horror of James Travenstead, the firebrand minister... Witches, druids, and ceremonial magicians have all utilized the site along, alongside Native American, Christian, and pagan groups. So he was kind of right. They were, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> I mean, think about it. They've involved astronomy in it, and in reality, all religions have something to do with space and the use of stars and moon and sun. This was very well thought out. Yeah, he obviously couldn't have done it by himself. Yeah, he said there was a group of them. And they've been planning it for 20 years, so. But then even once they plan it, they have to, like, and they pick the spot. Like, then they have to plan more to make sure they get all the the measurements and angles and dimensions correctly. Right? Like, just so that that North Star is always visible and all that other stuff. Well, he had that little model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's why they brought in the astronomer and stuff. Because, yeah, it it was pretty difficult to make. Some claim R.C. Christian is a reference to Roman Catholicism. Others highlight the use of the phrase Age of Reason, linking them to the Thomas Paine book of the same name that attacked the Christian establishment. Over time, this almost militant form of Christianity has become entwined with all manners of far-right conspiracy theories proclaiming that the faith is under attack. These New World Order conspiracies derived from perceived biblical warnings in Revelations 13, 7-8 of a single united government and common language were populated by the debunked protocols of the elders of Zion. This fraudulent 1903 anti-Semitic text proclaims that Jews were conspiring to enact this one-world government. In recent years, these attacks have come from the likes of Alex Jones, 
and Mark Dice, who make careers from selling such paranoia to the American public, convincing swaths of citizens that fascism is at their door. Is this getting complicated? Very complicated. I think it has a very simple meaning, and people are trying to turn it into something that it's not. Yeah. It sounds like they're trying to bring together people. Also, don't destroy the earth. So recycle. Right. And let's not be jerks. Pretty much. Except for the population is extremely large. Well, and so that's part of the problem. Uh, that's what I'm going to get into here. Taken out of context, the first suggested commandment of maintaining humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature can seem threatening, the number being far lower than the current population of the world. However, constructed in 1980 as the Cold War was heating up, the message stands as advice for a post-apocalyptic world where nuclear winter has decimated the population of the planet, not a call for mass extermination. Right. So at that time, there was threat of nuclear war, and that many people dying wouldn't be unimaginable. So thinking of it like that, that would make sense on breeding and choosing who you breed with to ensure, like, they will survive, the children will survive. Right. You know. If you're because thinking. otherwise it just sounds like eugenics. Exactly. I see both sides, but since you said that, that makes that makes sense. I can see why. So the demand for wise reproduction to improve fitness and diversity could be seen in our current times as a call for eugenics, yet in a world that requires rebuilding could also be seen as common sense. That's what you just said. Oh. <laughs> I mean, because you, if you want the human race to survive and you're in that type of condition or environment mm-hmm. you have to be choosy i guess i don't know i in, think you in take honesty, whatever girl you can get at that point probably mm-hmm. you would definitely have to but how would you know i mean she's got to make good sandwiches stop some have suggested that the group involved in the georgia guidestones has power influence and money even being a still existing rosicrucian order Mm-mm. you made that up what's that word One argument against the claim is that the fact that the Georgia Guidestones are not complete as the original idea. Initially, they were to have been eight other stones as per the plan dictated by Wyatt. While Christians seemingly hoped the public might become involved, when they didn't, no further funding from R.C. Christian or his alleged group ever materialized. So they wanted other people to add on to the stones. Like later on? Yeah, and they were going to, I guess, help fund it and stuff, but nobody added to it. But what are you supposed to add to it? I have no idea. Somebody knows. If it's to be added to, somebody knows. Maybe there's another group. Last thing we need is the universal language of emojis to be on there. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a good one. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not too late. We get emojis, some sign language. That way blind people can come read it. Oh, honey. (laughs) You mean Braille? (laughs) Oh, yeah, you're right. We'll put sign language so deaf people can read it. They can read words. What the hell? Wow. You just don't want to add to it, do you? Just said emojis. Oh, my God. That's an HR nightmare. You. What? The only man who ever truly knew the truth behind R.C. Christian and the Stones was Wyatt C. Martin. Following their construction, he maintained contact with Christian and the two became friends, sharing letters, and when in Atlanta, Martin would meet Christian for dinner in Athens. Wyatt last heard from his friend in 2001, around the time of the September 11th attacks, and he was in his 80s then. Mm. So they're presumed that he has passed away now. Mm. Despite his promise, Wyatt never destroyed all the documents relating to the Georgia Guidestones, and instead kept it in his garage. So he, he didn't even put it in a lockbox? I guess not. Who's going to dig through papers in your garage? I would. Why? 
<laughs> do you need me to clean out your garage? <laughs> Let me read all your personal information first. I'll do it. I don't want socials. And I don't want your banking information. I just want your notes. I can't read it. It's all in sign language. Oh, my God. <laughs> While he was planning to take the secret to his grave, he became angered at the talk of the New World Order and secret societies in 2009 in an interview with Randall Sullivan. So this guy's doing interviews? like I mean, people keep asking him. They want to know. Oh, okay. Yeah. You're talking about the builder. Yeah. Okay. And so this is a quote. All along, Christian said that who he was and where he came from had to be kept a secret. He said, mysteries work that way. If you want people interested, you can only let them know so much. Yeah. So he's trying to be mysterious. He wants people to take interest. Well, yeah. Because mm-hmm. then it's not fun anymore. In 2010, the makers of a documentary, Dark Clouds Over Elberton, claimed to have obtained the address of R.C. Christian. The makers were said to have exploited the trust of Martin, who had recently suffered a stroke. They acquired one of the letters sent to him and noted the return address. The documentary concluded that Christian was in fact a doctor by the name of Herbert Heine Kirsten, a man who had publicly praised David Duke, the former Grand Wizard of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm, now, that's an interesting story. David Duke. Yeah. We need to cover that. That man is something else. William Sales Doan, an author and Fort Dodge historian, claims that Kirsten was an open racist and had stated his intentions to create a monument to prove the superiority of the white race. But that doesn't prove that. Yeah. Like, th- why would you why would you put all these different languages and stuff on there? Very good question. That's the wrong monument. Kirsten was friends with William Shockley, the Nobel Prize winning physicist who became known for his views on scientific racism and promotion of the belief that whites were genetically superior. Another friend of Kirsten was said to be Robert Merriman, publisher of the Fort Dodge Messenger. Merriman arranged for the publication of Common Sense Renewed, a book written by Robert Christian. Common Sense Renewed is named after Thomas Paine's book, Common Sense, and calls for a resumption of Paine's ideals, a common thread in libertarian politics. However, alongside the mainstream libertarianism and conservatism, the book seems to stand alone as a personal manifesto, including New Age thinking into providing a solution to world problems. The book includes solutions to issues such as overpopulation and education reform, which the author believes can be solved through reason, many of the themes echoing Rosicrucianism. So with that, if that is true, then that explains, again, the selection of who you have children with. Yeah. So then I, I'm... If this is all speculation. Yeah, I, I know. I know. I mean, you can... If you're looking for something, you're, you'll find it. Mm-hmm. In all honesty, you'll find it. But, you know, that that is concerning. I mean, that was one of the main things that concerned me was, like, everything else is kind of okay, I guess. You know, the population... Obvi- I don't know what the population was in 1980, but... I'd say it was more than what they were quoting. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is the world is overpopulated. It really is. Yeah. And it's a problem, but... We're not in balance, but, you know, there's there's not a fix for that. Not an ethical fix. Exactly. Yeah. So moving on, we are not getting into that. So I'm going to answer your question from earlier. Rosicrucianism is a spiritual and cultural movement which arose in Europe in the early 17th century. The mysterious doctrine of the order is built on esoteric truths of ancient past, which concealed from the average man provided insight into nature, the physical universe, and the spiritual realm. Okay. Does that help? 
kind of. The book was allegedly sent to friends in government. While this is frequently taken as the truth, there is no evidence, and written in 1986, there is a possibility that the book was a hoax, written to create mystery surrounding the Guidestones. Printings of the books featuring the Georgia Guidestones on the cover are reprints. The original was limited to 100 copies. However, taken at face value, it seems possible that Kirsten, perhaps alongside noted friends such as Merriman and Shockley, might very well be behind the Georgia Guidestones and be lobbying for the views contained in the book. This is all contradicted by the claims that Wyatt never knew Christian's real name, nor where he was truly located, with the letters sent from various locations. He even passed a lie detector to prove that. Yeah. Well, and back in, at least in the 80s, they were really about them lie detectors. Yeah. Even the most basic knowledge of white supremacist ideology leads to a conclusion that the Guidestones are unlikely to be the work of a racist. As a monument to racial superiority, it seems doubtful that Hebrew, Arabic, and Swahili would be featured on three of the faces, nor that the stones would make a plea for commitment to nature and unite humanity and international cooperation. Yeah. That's what you said. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's what doesn't make sense. They don't want that. So with the monument becoming a pilgrimage for witches, druids, and ceremonial magicians, alongside New Age and pagan movements, it seems astonishing that the forces of white supremacy would have maintained their silence for this long. Right? Yeah. Seems like they would have set it on fire by now. That's what they like to do. The prevalence of Christian conspiracy theories since the rise of the internet has given new life to the Georgia Guidestones, yet brought in with it new dangers. The monument being graffitied and attacked at least twice, threatened by a call for unity, reason, and a new age of enlightenment, many have claimed the real purpose of the stones are Satanism and the age-old threats of a one-world government. Perhaps the entire affair is an elaborate hoax, one that generates revenue and income for the town where it is located and the people involved. Maybe there is some truth to the claim that the articulate R.C. Christian may have been versed in the ideas of Rosicrucianism and that local Freemasons were involved. Perhaps the stones do indeed stand as a secret racist attack, one unidentified for 40 years. Or maybe an independently wealthy Christian merely wanted to promote his message and decided to create a mystery to do so. No matter the truth, the mystery of the Georgia Guidestones, like the Slavs themselves, are set to stand for a very long time to come. Wonderful. I think it's just a bunch of rich people. They said R.C. Christian was, like, real nicely dressed, had a nice suit. Yeah. I mean, it looked like he had money. It may not even been him. He could have been the help. Yeah. Because when you're real rich, your help can't walk around looking like trash. True. So basically, we're all going to die, and whoever's left, hopefully they can read emojis. We got to get that emoji one up. It's going to be some kid who only speaks in emojis. That is a universal language. Smiley face, eggplant, peach, water, sleep. What's that mean? (laughs) Is that like, um, is that like, I'm hungry, it's dinner time, and now I got to take a nap? Mm -hmm. Oh. I'm thirsty. (laughs) Right. I don't think that it's anything to do with racism or the Ku Klux Klan. The what? The KKK. Okay. Um, I think the Freemasons are probably tired of people blaming them for everything. Yeah. They're like, we didn't actually do that much. We just gathered to drink alcohol away from our wives. That's what I was thinking in my brain. We just like to get naked around each other and drink beer. (laughs) And what's wrong with that? I think it was just a message about humanity in general and coming together and wise your asses up. Stop Mm -hmm. littering. Mind your business. Stay in your lane. It's very, that's one of those things that it's kind of like, I I can't even draw a conclusion. I I have no idea. That's so strange. 
Well, great job. Thanks. My story is about Roy Benavidez. Have you heard of him? Uh I told you about him. Yeah. You mentioned him. Yeah. This isn't about like murder or like paranormal stuff. This is more of, I read it and I didn't believe that it actually happened. And then when I researched more, I was like, holy fuck. This guy is absolutely amazing. Why did I, why, why have I never heard of this man? Roy Benavidez was born Raul Perez Benavidez near Cuero, Texas on August the 5th of 1935. His father was Salvador Benavidez. He was a Mexican-American. His mother was Teresa Perez, an American Yaqui Indian. So both of his parents died when he was really young from tuberculosis. So him and his brother were raised by his aunt and uncle in El Campo, Texas. He did end up dropping out of school around the seventh grade. And it was something that he cited as saying that he regretted doing, but you know, he needed to work and stuff like that. So he dropped out of school. At 17, he enlisted in the Texas National Guard. And that was around 1952. And in June of 1955, when he was 19, he switches to active duty army and his infantry training takes place at Fort Ord, California. By 1958, he had served over in South Korea and Germany. And in 1959, I'm throwing a lot at you. Yeah. In 1959, he attends military police school in Fort Gordon, Georgia. He completes parachute training. He marries his childhood sweetheart. And he gets assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Busy year that year. Yeah, sounds like it. So while he's at Fort Bragg, he begins training for the Army Special Forces, and he does end up qualifying, and he gets accepted to be a member of the 5th Special Forces Group and the Studies and Observation Group, SOG or SOG. I'm not really sure if you say the letters or you just say the word. Just for reference, the 5th Special Forces Group is one of the most decorated active duty groups in the U.S. Armed Forces and is designed to deploy and execute missions such as unconventional warfare, counterinsurgency, special reconnaissance, counterterrorism, information operations, and security force assistance. Now, that's not everything. That's just some. Yeah, they're bad at the bone. Yes, they are. Um, Studies and Observation Group was a highly classified special operations unit during the Vietnam War. The U.S. military held no confirmed knowledge of this unit's existence until the early 80s. And by the 90s, uh, declassified Pentagon documents did confirm their existence and actions. And this unit conducted reconnaissance missions that included rescuing downed pilots, They would carry out the capture of enemy prisoners and conducted rescue operations to retrieve prisoners of war. That's not everything that they did. I just thought it was interesting that they didn't exist until. Yeah. (laughs) It's so silly. So in 1965, Benavidez is in Vietnam and he is serving as an advisor to the Army of the Republic of Vietnam Infantry Regiment. During a patrol, he steps on a landmine and gets evac to the Brook Army Hospital in San Antonio, Texas. So when he stepped on the landmine, he suffered like serious damage to the bone and cartilage in his spine. And the doctors told him he's paralyzed. He's never going to walk again. However, he's not having that. And against the orders of his doctors, he begins his own unsanctioned road to recovery. So every night he crawls out of bed using his elbows and his chin. He crawled to a wall like near his bed. He'd then like prop himself up against the wall and then he'd make the effort to like lift himself up. Like he'd just start kind of scooting up using like the backs of his arms and his back and stuff. Yeah. Um, And he'd scoot up until he was in like a standing position. Once he's in the standing position, like once he finally made it there, he started the process of like moving his toes back and forth and then he would move his feet and then his legs. So this was a slow and 
painful process. And then he'd start moving his legs. So then he started the process. So once he was able to do all, you know, do all that, he started the process of pushing himself up against the wall using his legs. Because before he's just using his upper body strength. And citing him, basically it it caused such extreme pain to do that, that it would put him in tears sometimes because it hurt so bad. And by July of 1966, Benavidez walks out of the Brook Army Hospital unassisted with his wife by his side. Wow. So even after, like, a lot of the stories about him, this wasn't in a lot of them. I think it's probably because that's not going to work for everybody. But I think this gives you a good idea of who you're dealing with. Yeah, he's not giving up. Yeah, he's not having that. He's walking the hell out of there. And, you know, for most people, they'd be done. They're good. They're done. But he volunteers for a second tour of Vietnam. And in January of 1968, Benavidez returns to Vietnam, but this time as a Green Beret with the Special Forces. On May 2nd of 1968, Sergeant... Benavidez is monitoring an operation at the forward operating base in Lochneen. I looked up how to say that and I still don't think I'm saying it right. Sounds good. A 12-man special forces reconnaissance team has been inserted to gather intel on confirmed large-scale enemy activity west of Loch Ninh. The area was heavily controlled by the North Vietnamese Army, and so the team was met with like heavy enemy resistance almost immediately. The team requested an emergency extraction, and three helicopters made attempts for extraction, but due to intense small arms fire and anti-aircraft fire, they can't land. So when the helicopter returns to offload wound, any wounded soldiers that they were able to pick up and they assess any damage, Benavidez volunteers to help in another rescue attempt to get the team. On arrival, he quickly realizes that the team, who are either dead or wounded, they can't make it to the pickup zone. So he redirects the helicopter to a nearby clearing where he jumps out. He runs about 82 yards under withering enemy fire to the team. I had to look that up because I was like, what is withering enemy fire? But basically, it's like to cut down or destroy. Like, they're just... They're shooting. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're, you know, it's just every damn where, I guess. Before making it to the team, he sustains wounds to his right leg, his face, and his head. So, with fresh injuries, he repositions the members of the team who still have the ability to fight to cover the landing zone for the extraction helicopter to come in. Yeah. So, like, he's, he's rescuing some other badasses. Yeah. And f- making them form a perimeter... So he's wounded. Can, yeah, he's hurt. Yeah, he's wounded. And he's positioning them so that they can cover the helicopter to land. Yeah. Once he gets them in position for the extraction helicopter to come in, he throws smoke canisters to direct the helicopter to their position. Once the helicopter lands, while being shot at, Benavidez begins to carry or drag team members to the hovering helicopter. He's also providing protective fire by running alongside the helicopter as it's moving for them to pick up members of the remaining team, which is, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not I'm not in the military, but I'm just finding this absolutely fascinating. Like, he's running beside the fucking helicopter. The shooting begins to intensify around Sergeant Benavidez when he's suddenly shot in the abdomen and he's hit in the back by grenade shrapnel. Severely injured, he locates the body of First Class Leroy Wright, who is the team leader. As he is collecting a radio and classified documents that the team leader was carrying, the pilot in the extraction helicopter is shot and killed. This causes the helicopter to crash with the wounded soldiers still inside that he was able to get in there. Securing the classified documents, Benavidez makes his way to the helicopter wreckage. By now, he's extremely wounded and he's losing lots of blood. However, he still has enough strength to aid any survivors out of the helicopter wreckage and then organizes them into a defensive perimeter. (laughs) 
again. Need and, another chopper. And now, like, they done been in a, a helicopter crash. <laughs> All the while, still under fire from automatic weapons and grenades, he moves within the perimeter, distributing water and ammo to the wounded men. So the ones that can fight, they get ammo and water. The ones that can't, he's giving them water the whole time. You need to know the Gatorade? I don't think they had that then. I don't I don't know. I don't know when Gatorade was invented. He calls them for tactical airstrikes and he helps direct fire from supporting gunships to suppress enemy fire. So this is so another extraction attempt can occur. So we've already had four helicopters and now here's our fifth one coming in. While giving first aid to a team member, he gets he ends up getting shot in the thigh by enemy fire. And a second evac helicopter lands and again. Sergeant Benavidez begins assisting the wounded onto the helicopter. After coming back from loading a wounded soldier onto the aircraft, he ends up, I think this was like the second or third trip he had made. I couldn't get a definite when I was looking. But on his way back, he gets attacked by a North Vietnamese soldier who clubs him in the mouth and stabs him with a bayonet. Sustaining like deep lacerations to his hands, he pulls out the bayonet, hand-to-hand combat fucking starts happening, and then using his own knife, he stabs the enemy soldier and kills him. Still under fire, he continues to retrieve wounded soldiers from the perimeter. He's unstoppable. What the fuck? (laughs) On one of the returns from the perimeter, he spots two enemy soldiers rushing the helicopter. These two soldiers are coming from an angle that prevents the aircraft gunner to fire on them. So Sergeant Benavidez picks up a discarded firearm, shoots the two soldiers, preventing them from reaching the helicopter. He's just aware of everything, isn't he? My gosh. And he's like actively like getting more and more wounded, losing more and more blood. He's running around, which means his heart is pumping. He makes one last sweep of the perimeter to ensure that no wounded are left behind and that all classified materials have either been collected or destroyed. Once he makes his final sweep, he collapses into the helicopter. So, once evacuated and back at the base, the wounded and dead are examined, including Sergeant Benavidez. So, he's like... He's in bad shape. He's in very bad shape. Yeah. And he was determined to be dead. When they got there. So as he's being placed into a body bag, he is recognized by a friend who calls for a doctor to come over and take another look at him. The doctor re-examines Benavidez and comes to the conclusion that yes, he is dead and he starts zipping up the body bag when suddenly Benavidez spits in the doctor's face to show that he's still alive. He can't do anything and that was all he could do. So with a total of 37 bullets, bayonet and shrapnel wounds he's evacuated to the brook army medical center where it took him about a year to recover in 1969 he is released from the hospital and stationed in fort riley kansas and then in 1972 he is transferred to fort sam houston in san antonio texas and he stays at fort sam houston until his retirement on September the 10th of 1976. Because of his unselfish and heroic efforts, Benavidez saved the lives of at least eight men and is awarded the Distinguished Service Cross and Four Purple Heart. In 1973, however, Special Forces Lieutenant Colonel Ralph R. Drake insists that Benavidez should receive the Medal of Honor. Due to there being a time limit, apparently, I guess, to submit an application for soldiers to receive that, um, his is expired. So uh, an appeal was made to Congress which resulted in an exemption specifically for him to receive it. However, the Army Decorations Board denied the exemption and required an eyewitness account from someone present during what Benavidez referred to as six hours in hell. Do you think it's because it's almost unbelievable? Yeah, it sounds like a movie. 
Not thinking that anyone was still alive, he was stunned to discover that the former radio man, Brian O'Connor, from his special forces team was actually still alive. O'Connor didn't know that this eyewitness testimony was needed until 1980 when he saw an article about Benavidez in an El Campo newspaper in Australia. He immediately contacts Benavidez, submits a 10-page report confirming all accounts of what happened, and satisfied the Army Decorations Board upgrades Benavidez to the Medal of Honor. And in 1981, President Ronald Reagan presents the award to Sergeant Benavidez and tells the press, if the story of his heroism were a movie script, you would not believe it. That's amazing. Right? Yeah. In his post-military career, Sergeant Benavidez and his family returned to El Campo, Texas, where he devoted his time to speaking with youth on the importance of getting an education. He became an advocate for veterans when the Social Security Administration was going to cut off disability payments to veterans. And due to his advocacy, they abandoned their plans on cutting benefits. The U.S. Armed Forces, schools, civic groups, and even private businesses constantly sought him out as a speaker. And he also wrote three autobiographical books about his life in the military. On November the 29th of 1998, at the age of 63, Master Sergeant Roy Benavidez died after suffering from respiratory failure and complications from diabetes. He was buried with full military honors at Fort Sam Houston National Cemetery. Overall, he received 27 military awards, I don't know. Listen, I was looking at the military awards and there's like 27, but then some of them are stripes and he's got like eight stripes. And then there are some things that have like knots in them and leaves. Like it's, I don't know what all that means. So I'm not trying, I ain't trying to be disrespectful, but I don't. But he had a lot. It was, yeah. So he like, there were 27 military awards, nine personal honors, and that's like stuff in the community and stuff. And he has 14 buildings and institutions named after him. There is a conference room at the Department of Military Instruction of the United States Military Academy called the Benavidez Room. And inside this room, there's a signed picture of of him and a G.I. Joe toy that has been modeled in his likeness. Wow. (laughs) There is a U.S. Bob Hope class roll-on, roll-off vehicle cargo ship named in his honor, the USNS Benavidez. And in November of 2020, there are discussions to rename Fort Hood to Fort Benavidez. But they're doing that because they're trying to, re- you know, there are all these buildings and institutions that are named after Confederate uh, generals. They're trying to rename them. And so he, he's up for that, too. Yeah, well, he deserves it. Right? It's pretty amazing. It's unbelievable, really. Really? Yeah. Hit the ground running and got shot. After never going to walk again. I just found it fascinating. Yeah, that's a great story. And there's even a... I'd never heard of him before. Right. Oh, my, my sources. My main sources for this is the Texas State Historical Association. Um, and An article by Chuck Lyons on HistoryNet.com called Roy Benavidez, A Will to Live and Fight. Uh the Congressional Medal of Honor Society Stories of Sacrifice. And that's it. And there's even, I think, I believe it's the Congressional Medal of Honor Society. I think that there's a video of him giving a speech. It's only like nine minutes long and it is, he's just talking and it's so good. I don't see, at least like in our area, I don't see patriots like that. He He's very patriotic. It was quite wonderful. Yeah, it's a fantastic story. Good job. Thank you. So that's it. That's it. All right. Well, thanks for listening. If you guys have any topics, email us, eerieandabsurd at gmail.com. Don't forget to like us, rate us, review us on on Apple Podcasts, iTunes. Share us. Yeah. We have a Facebook. We have an Instagram. We have a Twitter that I I barely use any of these items, but we're working on it. 
Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to do things. I just don't like social media. Yeah. It's really, uh, tell a friend, be a friend. Oh, no, be a friend, tell a friend. If you see something, say something. About us. Is that, yeah. Yeah. Hmm? No news is bad news. But in this case, yes. All news is good news in this case as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So until next time, hug a veteran. Yeah. And if someone's not listening to you and you're trying to talk to them, spit in their face. Fuck yeah. That'll get that good. Let's not spit in faces. Now they're listening. (laughs) Bye. Until next time, fellow Absurdians, remember, everything you've heard is true, monsters are real, and the strangers in black are not a figment of your imagination. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast streaming service. Do you have a story you want to share? Contact us at eerieandabsurd at gmail.com or visit our website at eerieandabsurd.com to submit a suggestion. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, both at eerie underscore absurd.